You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Remy Brog, Professor Emeritus of Arabic and Religious Philosophy at the Sorbonne and Romano Gardini Chair of Philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. We sat down with Professor Brog in the Gavin House Library to discuss his intellectual journey, his scholarship, and his relationship with the Lumen Christi Institute. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I do communications and events here at the Institute. And together with my colleague, Mark Franzen, our programs coordinator, we are delighted to be here with Professor Remy Brog. Professor, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'd like to begin by asking you to share with us about your upbringing in France. Were you raised in a Catholic household? How is it that you decided that you wanted to pursue the intellectual life? And also, what were some moments in your upbringing uh, at which you decided that you wanted to remain Catholic? Moments at which Mm -hmm. the plausibility Mm -hmm. of the faith impressed you as you were transitioning into an adult Catholic faith? Well, I see. Well, first, socially speaking, I grew in a lower middle-class family in which there was no money, no connections, no culture, but manners, manners and morals. And well, I tried to stick to the uh, last two items. I understood rather quickly that uh, one way for me to escape the rather narrow uh, world in which I moved was, uh, well, excellence at school. I was not properly speaking excellent, but I was rather good, no. I was not that interested in what I learned at high school, but I did what was expected of me. Discovered with uh, some sort of passion, of enthusiasm, philosophy, in the very li- in the, the upper form of uh, the high school when I was uh, well a matter of 16 years old, and well decided. Uh, in accord with my family, to be sure, to go to one of those special forms that are, technically speaking, parts of uh, high schools, but that prepare for the competitive examinations that lead to one of what we call grandes écoles, that's untranslatable, you know, a large school wouldn't make any sense. Uh, And they are uh, special schools that run parallel to the university and in which the program is very much the same as in universities, the difference being that there is some tutorship, very good uh, teachers, boarding, we uh, we even got paid uh, for us to become civil servants because teachers in France are civil servants, you know, there are well, very few uh, private uh, institutions of higher learning. And well, that's where I discovered uh, philosophy and well, remained sort of faithful to to it till uh, the present day. 
As far as my Catholic faith is concerned, well, my parents would go to church, but never spoke about that, which was quite a common practice in, uh, uh, as I told you, lower middle class uh, families in France. My grandfather in particular, well, I never knew my father, he was killed when I was one year old, so I grew with both my grandparents on the motherly side and, thank goodness, my mother, who is still alive, by the way, 93. Uh, my grandfather was a pious man who never missed the uh, Sunday morning Mass, but he would never utter a bare word about that. Another example uh, from a higher social level is de Gaulle. It's very much the kind of thing that was done at this period of time uh, in French bourgeois circles, you know. Faith but silence. Uh, not because faith was supposed to be exclusively something private that had no consequences on, uh, well, everyday, common, and even political and social and so on life, but because perhaps this was too, uh, too precious to be uh, aired, uh, too precious to be publicly uh, exposed. Anyway, uh, I can say that, uh, well, I already was kind of a small intellectual, uh, what drew me towards, uh, towards the religion that was already uh, in my cradle, so to speak, uh, was an intellectual interest. I found that not only beautiful, uh, not only, uh, well, attractive, but intelligent. It was a clever way for God to have handled with, uh, with mankind. It was a uh, clever move, you know, in this uh, chess game against evil to have done what he did. And well, uh, how I decided to be a Catholic, how I decided to be an intellectual, uh, well, those two questions are two sides of the same coin to some extent. You know, my interest for uh, Catholicism, for dogma, for me religion is first and foremost dogma. And I was happy to find this formula under the pen of John Henry Newman, is his apologia. That's not something like sentimentality or feelings or... Okay, I have little... A call for, um, well, you know, those outer manifestations such as you can see them in some evangelic movements at present, in which this uh, sentimentalist uh, conception of faith is especially rampant. Okay, well then you have the answer to the, my first question, or to your first two questions, that proved to be only one. <laughs> As was the case for yesterday's program, you and Jean-Luc Marion have appeared together for several Lumen Christi events. And I was told yesterday that you and Jean-Luc were neighbors for a time when you were young students, young graduate students, I believe with, with young families. Tell us a bit about that. You must have had some 
fascinating evening chats together about your work. Well, if this was the case, I'm afraid I forgot a great deal about those chats. They did take place from uh, the moment in which, we, since the moment in which we met, and we met most precisely in the fall of 90, uh, 1967, 1967, i.e., well, slightly more than uh, half a century ago which doesn't make me feel younger. In any case, uh, Jean-Luc had an upbringing in a deeply Catholic and committed family. And he had read a great deal of uh, authors uh, whom I had only vaguely read. And Pascal Kierkegaard was in the, the, the Danish uh, philosopher, cum theologian, was rather important for him at this point of time. And well, we had excellent chemistry <laughs> since the beginning, and we met on the occasion of a uh, meeting organized by the chaplaincy of the École Normale Supérieure, the, the Grande École, to repeat, uh, to which we were admitted in the fall of 1967. Uh, as classmates together? You were admitted as classmates together? Absolutely, absolutely. We belonged to the same well, team. Uh, the word of art is promotion, but this wouldn't make any uh, sense in, uh, in English, I'm afraid. And well, we uh, were in the same boarding house for this school uh, included uh, uh, well boarding and uh, we had in fact uh, some very interesting conversations i was quickly fascinated by the sharpness of his mind and well i think he liked my humor uh, that's what brought us together that's <laughs> it was decisive for an, a still more important encounter uh, when he uh, invited me to watch a movie to which he had invited a female friend of him to whom he had said, well, I've brought a pal of mine. He has a very special kind of humor. And well, this uh, girl became my wife some years after that, so I feel, among other things, rather grateful uh, towards uh, Jean-Luc Marion, uh, whose work, well, I admire from time to time, from afar. I well, can't claim to understand each and every sentence that he writes, but I admire his, uh, uh, his acumen and his... Uh, uh, productivity. You know, he's written far more than I did, far many more books than I did. And well, uh, chats, well, as I told you, the content was uh, mainly literary and philosophical and theological in nature. We were not much interested in politics. Uh, that was not our hood. Yeah? For some reason, uh, we were we did not despise those things. Uh, Jean Luc was a uh, an ardent uh, Gaullist, a supporter of uh, 
the de Gaulle regime. I was more lukewarm on this point, but we could get on well together. All the same. Since you were classmates together, I have to ask, who got better marks in school? <gasps> My goodness! Wow! Uh, well, the question is not uh, totally fair because we, uh, well, we're not sort of graded in the same way. You know, the educational system at the Ecole Normale uh, was not exactly the same. Well, the only thing I can say, the, the thing in which a ranking was there, uh, is the competitive exam for us to enter uh, the school. Uh, they took, they used to take, uh, well, a matter of 40 uh, young people, young male people. The uh, school was not yet uh, uh, open for uh, the female. And well, uh, when we entered, uh, I had number two. I was the second on the list. And he was number 27. <laughs> which does not mean that he was a twit. But he belonged to this very special race of people who are excellent in fields that they like, and well, rather, to put it nicely, lackadaisical <laughs> uh, in fields that they don't like. For instance, he had well super uh, uh, grades in uh, French literature and in philosophy, whereas his grades in uh, languages, for instance, Latin, for instance, was his uh, uh, well uh, weak point. Uh, well, he was rather bad, and for this reason, he had not a ranking as high as somebody more well, let's say, uh, perhaps less interesting, uh, I mean myself, uh, but who had rather good marks in each and every uh, uh, field, in each and every discipline, but not outstanding things uh, in any of them. And well, uh, when we uh, had the other competitive examination, well, he was far better than I was. I mean, the examination in philosophy only, philosophy only. In order to enter the school, we had philosophy, we had ancient history, modern history, Latin, Greek, English, and, uh, well, that's it. And that's it. Only humanistic matters. But when we had to uh, make the competitive examination in philosophy, in philosophy exclusively, I was number seven and he was number two. So both of us were somehow number two on the list. And well, let me add a rider to this ranking. The number one uh, in this uh, examination never let anybody hear of him. You know, he had a totally obscure career uh, as a uh, teacher of philosophy, uh, if my memory serves me right, in Corsica, in Corsica. So he never wrote anything, and well, the real genius of the group was, of course, Jean-Luc, 
uh, Marion, who was only number two. And this means that the criteria uh, uh, according to which we are judged in the, those examinations are not always equal to uh, the real quality of people. There's another example, you know, the, well, the famous philosopher Bergson, Henri Bergson, we, we pronounce it that way, Bergson, although he was born to English parents, Bergson, and uh, English parents who chose to uh, live in uh, Britain, uh, in London, whereas uh, Bergson chose the French citizenship and studied precisely at École Normale. And he was number two uh, <laughs> on the list of people who had been admitted at the Agrégation de Philosophie. Agrégation de Philosophie is the name of the examination I've uh, just been alluding to. Number one was a perfect, well, uh, well, unknown person. Number two was famous philosopher Bergson. And number three was the famous politician Jaurès, Jean Jaurès, who made a name in the, had a name in the uh, uh, story of uh, French socialism, and who was killed at the beginning of the war, not not in action, but because he stood for peace at all costs, and he was shot by a well, jingoist of sorts who absolutely wanted to uh, fight uh, the Germans. And as a consequence, by the way, this jingoist spent the whole war in jail and did not hear the sound of a rifle. Okay, that's the way things are. Fast forward nearly 50 years after your matriculation mm -hmm. to the, to the mm -hmm. school with Jean-Luc. Mm -hmm. And you're lecturing here at the Lumen Christi Institute. Mm -hmm. How did you first become connected to the Institute? Was it through Thomas Levergood, the executive director? Well, that's very simple. You know, I uh, heard of uh, Lumen Christi uh, through the mediation of Thomas Levergood, who is among other, has among other qualities, the qualities of a uh, fundraiser, an advertiser, and a talent scout. And I got in touch with uh, Thomas Levergood uh, through the mediation of Jean-Luc Marion, who had been uh, uh, teaching in this University of Chicago for uh, well, almost 20 years already. He must have begun in 94, nine, something like that, around 94. Oh. And on this point, my answer must be simple, because reality was extremely simple. I guess that uh, Jean-Luc Marion recommended my humble self to Thomas Levergood, who, uh, well, uh, chose to buy me, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Right. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that Jean-Luc has had a more prolific career in terms of publications. And nevertheless, mm, in 2012, along with Father Brian Daly, you were the inaugural recipient of the Ratzinger Prize in Theology, which has been called by some the Nobel Prize in Theology. You've had an illustrious career. If you could describe your scholarly projects mm -hmm. over the decades as one scholarly project, and then in a few minutes explain that project and its importance for the world and or for the church, what would you say? Uh, well, first of all, this thing about the Nobel Prize was the invention of, uh, I don't know what kind of journalist who simply wanted to make a headline. It's nothing to do with that. Anyway, 
And this was quite a surprise, you know, when I received that. I was in Croatia uh, taking part in a summer course in Zadar. And uh, heard of that, or, or saw that, uh, to be precise, on the internet. Uh, well, I hadn't, hadn't been kept abreast, but really wondered whether this was not an error. Uh, I'm still thinking this was an error of sorts. Well, anyway, uh, of course, I accepted the prize with pride and, and well, high satisfaction. Although I do not understand myself as being a theologian, I'm a philosopher, uh, well, a true blue philosopher, and well, not at all a, a theologian, although I have, of course, as a believer, uh, an interest, a believer and as an intellectual, interest for uh, uh, theology. And well, as far as my, what you call very nicely, my scholarly corpus, or my uh, intellectual projects, as far as they are concerned, well, I'm afraid uh, I would be hard put to it, really, to find a, an Ariadne's clue that would lead uh, through each uh, uh, book, uh, publication, article, uh, lecture, and so on and so forth. Uh, well, first let's put aside what I had to write in order to jump over the hurdles of an academic career. I mean uh, the books I wrote on Greek philosophy, and they were part of... Uh, well, I had to do that. You know. Well, I liked to do that. I admire greatly Plato on which I wrote my very first book, Aristotle, on which I wrote my third book. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had written between the two a, a small essay on time in Plato and Aristotle, but my bulky doctoral thesis was on Aristotle. Okay, then, uh, well, because of complicated circumstances, I became uh, what I did, what I remained for uh, 20 years at the Sorbonne, professor for Arabic philosophy. I had taken up some Arabic in order to read not the Islamic philosophers, but Maimonides. I was deeply interested in Maimonides, the, the great Jewish thinker of the Middle Ages, still an authority for uh, present-day Judaism. And well, I had taken up uh, uh, Arabic at the School for Oriental Languages and, well, became, well, more by accident than uh, for other reasons, uh, the fellow who was in charge of teaching, uh, well, Avicenna, Averroes, Al-Farabi, and to uh, uh, Jewish thinkers who wrote in uh, Arabic like Maimonides, uh, Yehuda Halevi, and so on and so forth. I even had to deal with a Christian a philosopher by the name of Yahya ibn Adi. Well, this was interesting, but not fascinating, let's say. But, uh, well, I, I seized the opportunity of this uh, uh, getting uh, better cognizant of, uh, um, let's say, Islamic culture uh, to, uh, for me to write uh, this book on the European cultural identity, if I may put it in that bombastic way. The book was translated into English under the title of Eccentric Culture. 
And that's the basic idea, you know, a European culture as drawing uh, its content from sources that are not European, but rather Near Eastern, i.e., uh, on the one hand, uh, well, the Hebrew Bible, uh, and on the other hand, Greek and its uh, legacy, actual legacy, philosophy, not only philosophy, uh, but, okay, science and things. And, well, this uh, booklet might be, uh, well, proved uh, to uh, have been the germinal cell of what I uh, wrote after that. Um, if my scholarly corpus has some unity, well, it should circle around uh, the trilogy that I published from uh, 99 uh, till uh, 2000. Uh, 15, uh, something like that, you know, the wisdom of the world, the law of God, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man, the third has not yet been, well, was translated uh, into English, a translation is extant, but the book will be published, uh, if uh, God will, uh, in November, this fall. And well, uh, the overall uh, uh, problematic of uh, uh, this trilogy uh, is uh, the way in which uh, human beings <laughs> understood themselves vis-a-vis -vis, uh, nature, that's the first uh, book, vis-a-vis -vis the divine, God of the gods uh, in ancient Greece and, and different kinds of God, if I may say, because the Christian, God according to the Christians is not the same as God according to the Jews and let alone God according to the Muslims. And the third volume, which is the most recent, asks the question about the feasibility in the long run of the modern project a modern project which consists in weighing the anchors from both nature, which is at present only something that we have to control, that we have to conquer, and on the other hand, God, which uh, in some extreme versions of uh, modern humanism, well, is simply discarded. There isn't any external reference point for mankind, be that point nature or God, be that point underneath or above uh, humankind. And well, this is at present what keeps me uh, well, abreast, yeah. uh, what keeps me running perhaps would be better. Uh, and this explains the, well, the several books that I uh, published uh, sort of around uh, the uh, third volume of our trilogy around the kingdom of man, i.e. Uh, first the anchors in heaven, scheduled to be published in English translation in July, but seeing is believing, um, the legitimacy of the human, that was published in late December, 
and Moderately Modern, which is scheduled to be published at the same time as uh, the Anchors in Heavens. This is one thing. And as a contrapunct, sort of, there are books that are well, that deal with religious questions. There's this book on the God of the Christians, and on one or two other ones. Well, the title is uh, ironic. You know, it's uh, meant to uh, let people understand that they won't have in front of them a scholarly treatise on comparative religion. I give some ideas, some insights on Christianity in contradistinction to uh, earlier uh, so-called pagan religions on the one hand and uh, contemporary rival uh, neighboring religions like Judaism and Islam. And uh, some months ago I published a book by the totally off-putting title of On Religion. On Religion, full stop. Okay. Uh, it's, it exists only in French for the time being. They are translating it into Italian. Whether there will be an English translation, God knows. Yeah. And well, I plan to write uh, a book especially devoted to Islam. Oh, I was given the opportunity, thanks to my activity as a professor of Arabic philosophy to, well, say, learn two or three things about Islam, although I could hardly claim to be an Islamologist. That's a field in itself. Okay, but I have some, let's say I have some more knowledge uh, on Islam than the average uh, man in the Clapham omnibus, as the British idiom has it. Okay, there's, there's few unity in this corpus, but perhaps the presence of some uh, you know, uh, nagging questions <laughs> about uh, what man is, uh, what man has to do, uh, what he is and what he or, he or she, if you prefer, uh, what he or she is or and or has to do in his or her relationship with what is not human, i.e. nature, God, and, and things. Apart from that, uh, well, uh, there's some uh, diversity. The diversity is quite a positive word at present, so I won't hesitate to use it. Let me conclude with, with one lighter question. Mm -hmm. Tell us one American intellectual, contemporary, working in your fields of study, whose work you would highly recommend to students of your thought, to admirers of your work? Well, the first names that come to my mind are the names of people who are either older than I am and whose work I admire greatly. For instance, about Islamic things, Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis, who has just become 100 years old, I guess. Yeah? Uh, among uh, philosophers, legal scholars, well, there's a bevy of people whom I uh, admire greatly. Mary Ann Glendon, among legal scholars, and Robert George, uh, in the same field of scholarship. Well, in philosophy, uh, that's slightly more difficult. You know, since they are my colleagues, 
Uh, if I would give you a one name or two names, uh, the other ones <laughs> would be uh, well uh, uh, would have to protest. Would have to protest. You know. Uh, well, this reminds me of you know this uh, answer made by the violinist Isaac Stern uh, when he was asked about the best violinist uh, in the world. Well, he said, well, I am the second best. And all the best ones are my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and for this reason, I think I will dodge your question in quite a cowardly way. That's fair enough. Professor Remy Brog, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.